My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Andre Brown. On January 15, 1999, two teenagers were shot by a masked gunman in the Bronx, New York. It was just a, a war zone. The gunman first shot one and then chased down the other and shot him before running away. A witness says she saw the shooter remove his mask and eventually ID'd college student Andre Brown in a photo lineup. Andre was arrested, and a year later, he was found guilty of two counts of attempted murder. Fortunately, both teenagers lived, but he was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 20 years to life. However, Andre Brown couldn't run. He had been shot a year before and was recovering from a major leg surgery. But this was not his lawyer's defense. Instead, his defense counsel a big-shot mob lawyer for the Bonanno crime family, engaged in witness intimidation, ultimately condemning Andre. His lawyer was eventually charged for aiding a murder plot and, turning on his clients, entered into the witness protection program. And arrested by FBI agents on federal racketeering charges. Years later, after two decades in prison, Andre's new team found physical evidence linking someone to the scene. And it's not Andre. So why is Andre still in prison? And who did attack Sean Nicholson and O'Neill Virgo? We'll get to that after this. I learned about Andre's case through Jeff Deskovic. Jeff is an exoneree, which we'll get to later. After Jeff was freed, he started a foundation to help free the wrongfully convicted, like himself. Jeff reached out to me when I started this podcast, and we finally were able to connect after the holidays. Jeff introduced me to Andre Brown's case and asked if I was interested in covering it. After reading a case summary, I was blown away. There was so much evidence pointing away from Andre that I was confused as to how this case was even brought to trial in the first place. Before Jeff and his co-counsel Oscar Michelin took the case, Andre spent years on his own filing records requests and appeals. He only had his wife, Tamika. She started with me. You know, her hands have been so diligent. Um, I could have never made it this far without her first. She's been my voice, my advocate out there. When nobody heard my words, you know, being behind this, these walls, I'm silent. But she, 
she would not stop yelling out for the injustice. And her voice was definitely heard. Tamika is a huge part of Andre's life, and they've known each other since high school, but they didn't really connect then. Andre was more in street life, and Tamika avoided that. Tamika herself, she's always been a, a homebody. So in that turn, she was into the church. She was going to school. And in passing, you know, I would smile at her. I would see her, but I was into the street so much that it was as if her parents were saying, no, you won't get to this girl. And he didn't. It wasn't until Andre went to prison for this shooting that he and Tamika connected. They still had mutual friends and someone mentioned it was Andre's birthday. So she sent him a card. I'm just that type of individual who likes to make people happy. And I remember sending him a card. I'm not sure if he still has it. It was a... (laughs) (laughs) About, like, uh, reminiscing about old old records like from the 90s and from the 80s and things like that and you know we started communicating more so after he received that it was a long time ago yeah like oh wait I think yeah Yeah. he was very honest with me I um, understood his story unfortunately growing up in the Bronx and even though I was more involved in in school and in church I'm all too familiar with uh friends and, and family members being a part of the, the system and, and knowing what goes and tell with that. So yeah. um, he was very honest and just speaking with me and I just appreciated that. And it was more of a friendly connection before anything romantic happened. Tamika wound up being Andre's crusader and helped him get represented by Oscar and Jeff and to where he is today. I believe Oscar and Jeff are both emissaries sent from the Most High God in my stead to help me clear the past and um, have this wrongful conviction overturned. They came on board at a time of despair. And I should say that, you know, um, boldly to you because I was losing hope. You know, I had reached out to hundreds I want to say almost more than 1,500 attorneys written hand letters to these attorneys and trying to engage with them, telling them about my case, telling them about this wrongful conviction, you know, having belief that God was going to eventually hear my prayers and know that I'm wrongfully convicted and having the wrong and having the right, I should say, individuals come on board at the opportune time. Andre Brown was born September 6th, 1976, in the Bronx. He has four biological siblings and is the middle child. He also grew up with two of his cousins. They were, I believe, nine and six. Their mom passed away from breast cancer, and my mother adopted both of them. Andre says overall, it was a happy childhood. His parents had good jobs and the kids had a ton of toys. But growing up in the Bronx was tough. It was considered the murder capital in the United States. 
The worst ghetto in all of the United States. There was gang violence, crime. The city was so deeply in debt that banks had stopped lending it money. And there were constant fires raging in the South Bronx. People once called New York Fun City. Now the police are calling it Fear City. By the time Andre was a teenager in the 1990s, New York was entering into its most violent decade to date. And Andre found himself drawn to that life. I've always been a street guy. What I mean by that is, although I was going to school, I was also into the street life. And I was hustling, I was selling drugs. So how'd you get involved in all that? Well, how I got involved in all honesty into the drug trade was because my mom was taken away from me. She was taken away from me when I was, I want to say, um, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And she actually had to do a year in prison. Andre says his mom was dating a man who was selling drugs, unbeknownst to her. He got arrested in a drug conspiracy, and the police told his mom she needed to cooperate to save herself. But she insisted she didn't know anything. So she went to prison. At that time... When she was taken away from us, my younger sister, Monique, and my younger brother, Devon, they were still children, you know? And I started to hustle in order to feed them. I would make sure that they would eat. I would make sure that they were still going to school. I was still trying to go to school, but my main goal was to make sure that I brought food to that table every night to them. And this is how my drug trade started. Andre was dealing crack cocaine. This was during the crack cocaine epidemic. But he says he left that life after a near-death incident. I was almost killed. And at that time, I said to myself, something has to change right now in my life. In 98, I was coming home from a white castle. Upon coming back, I had traveled through another drug location. And I believe one of the individuals there thought that maybe I was coming to do something around that area. And they shot me. Wow. That was shot in my leg. At that time, I was about 160 pounds soaking wet. 6'2", being very skinny. I had to have eight pints of blood given to me because of the artery damage. It severed the artery and I almost bled to death. And that was the turning point that made me say, I'm going to school, I'm going back to college, I'm going to become something of myself in order to be a success story. What were you going to college for? I started off going to college for liberal arts. And I wanted to change my major to business. I became so engaged in knowing how to make acquisitions, mergers um, from the street life, from the street code, knowing how to be loyal, a man of honor, a man of integrity, knowing how to sell things. So I wanted to do business. And I was taken away from that. Exactly a year after the first shooting that inspired him to change his life, a second shooting would end all of that. On January 15th, 1999, at about 5.30 p.m., 18-year-old O'Neill Virgo and 18-year-old Sean Nicholson were on the corner of White Plains Road and Britton Street in the Bronx. 
as a cold, snowy, gray day. The corner was a known spot to buy and sell drugs, and often turf wars occurred. Both teenagers were known drug dealers. Suddenly, a masked gunman came up and shot O'Neill Virgo multiple times, including in the neck. Virgo fell to the ground, and Sean Nicholson, having just seen his friend shot execution style, took off running. The gunman chased down Sean Nicholson, shooting him in the back, ultimately paralyzing him from the waist down. A block away, Stephanie Telfer was sitting in traffic when, according to later testimony, she saw Nicholson and the gunman run by. She said he wasn't wearing a mask then, so she could see the shooter's face, but there was no initial ID. It's not clear when exactly the mask came off the gunman or where it went afterwards, but we know that Sean Nicholson also said the man was unmasked while he was being chased. Then, a few days later, a tip was called in, saying, hey, this guy Andre got shot a year earlier and he sells drugs. You might want to look at him. Sean Nicholson was also interviewed and said he recognized the shooter as Dre. All of this led the police to print wanted flyers with Andre's picture. When Andre found out he was wanted, he voluntarily went down to the precinct. I freely walked into the precinct with an attorney because I had nothing to lose. So I thought, 22 years later in hindsight, but it was the most biggest mistake I've ever made. If you remember, this is like J.J. Velasquez from earlier in the season. Andre voluntarily entered a lineup, and in that lineup, Stephanie Telfer, the witness, said she recognized Dre and picked him out as the shooter. On March 30th, 2000, just a year after the shooting, Andre went to trial. Andre says he had some money put away from his hustling, and his family also contributed, and they hired a private lawyer. Andre actually had two lawyers before they hired a very reputable defense attorney, but he was in such high demand that they didn't think he was giving Andre's case enough attention. And so they switched attorneys to Thomas J. Lee, who we'll get to in a minute. The trial, in my opinion, was a mess. The only evidence against Andre was the identification of Andre by the survivor, Sean Nicholson, and star witness, Stephanie Telfer. But that trial, Stephanie Telfer did not testify. And she had good reason not to, which we'll get to later. So in an incredibly rare move, the judge allowed her grand jury testimony to be read instead, which meant Andre's lawyer could not cross-examine her, could not point out inconsistencies or double-check her memory. In short, this deprived Andre of his right to confront the witness in cross-examination, a crucial part of the criminal justice system for a reason. And this is what really sealed Andre's fate. If his lawyer had been able to question her, he might have pointed out that she only named Andre as the shooter after the wanted posters with his face and name were plastered around the neighborhood. And Andre had an alibi. His mom said he was with her at the time of the murder. But Mr. Lee failed to call Andre's alibi witnesses to testify. And so on June 8th, 2000, 23-year-old Andre was convicted of two counts of attempted murder in the second degree. And he was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 20 years to life. 
He's in 22 years in prison at 44 years old. What do you what do you miss the most about your life? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, I, you're the first person who honestly asked me that question. I've never been posed that question before. What I miss the most at this time, seeing my mom before she passed away. Um, yeah. Spending time with her. My mom passed away when I was in prison through kidney failure. Um, it's a really, I take it so hard even to this day because it really was a tragic event in my life. She she had just gotten a brand new kidney and for some reason her body rejected it as she was at dialysis. What year was that? And she passed that was in 2006 that the, her body rejected it. She went into a coma, and then in 07, she passed away. Fortunately, Andre has his wife, Tamika, and two kids. His stepdaughter, Trinity, who's in college, and his son, AJ. How old is AJ? AJ. <laughs> AJ is nine. He hasn't reached double digits yet, you know? Okay, so now I have to ask, because this is the first time I've encountered this. Okay. You had him while you were in prison. Yes, I did. I mean, that was the most awesome thing that has ever happened to me. I've prayed for AJ for over 10 years, just strictly praying for him to come into existence. So... To have him here with me now is just, like, awesome, you know? What do you say to him about being in prison? Well, for a long time, I lied to AJ. You know, I'm ashamed to say it, but I did do it. I told him that I was away at school. Wow. So for a long time, he would ask me, you know, when he was three, coming into five... He would say, when are you coming home? Where are you? He would say that a lot to me. And when after speaking to him, it would crush me. You know, I would just go back into the cell and think and think and think and strategize. How am I going to get out of here to be with him? And Andre finally has a path forward. This is not my first you know, rodeo in this arena. Um, I don't think I've ever had um, a, a case with as much proof of innocence as I do in Andre's case. This is Oscar Michelin. I'm a partner in the law firm of uh, Cuomo LLC, and I am Andre's post-conviction attorney. Oscar is a powerhouse attorney who has exonerated six people. And for Andre's case, he's teamed up with another force. I'm Jeffrey Deskovic. I'm the founder and president of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which frees people who are wrongfully imprisoned and pursues policy changes aimed at preventing that. Jeff is also an attorney, but the most standout thing about Jeff is he is an exoneree himself. He was convicted in 1990 at the age of 17 for the rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl. He spent 16 years in prison before he was exonerated in 2006. He served 16 years in prison before new testing shows another man committed that crime. After his exoneration, 
Jeff was awarded $13.7 million from New York State and another $41 million in his civil rights lawsuit against the county. And Jeff used some of that money to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. Which has as its mission of freeing the wrongfully imprisoned and pursuing policy changes aimed at preventing wrongful convictions from happening in the first place. The Deskovic Foundation has helped free 10 wrongfully convicted people and pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful convictions. Together with Oscar, they are a dream team. So how did you guys get partnered together? The innocence community or the wrongful conviction community, it's a very small circle of folks and we all kind of are very, very supportive of each other. I met Jeff through those circles when he was graduated and, and passed the bar, which is a remarkable achievement for anybody, never mind someone under Jeff's circumstances. Uh, I had the idea that it would be wonderful to have a second seat, is what we call it, in court where you have someone assisting you. And that Jeff, now that he was an admitted attorney, um, could be the second seat at Andre's case and, you know, have Jeff come full circle in from defendant to exoneree to attorney to wrongful conviction attorney. And having an exoneree on the team really makes a difference. That has helped me to be able to enhance legal arguments, putting other secondary persuasive things in. I mean, I believe that in turn, overturning wrongful conviction cases, you want to be able to plant the seed in the judge's mind. OK, maybe this defendant is innocent and that's going to make them pay more attention. It's going to get them away from rubber stamp denying. And even if they don't ultimately rule for you on, say, actual saying the client is innocent, but they that might be uh, why they rule for your client in on a different issue, which still nets the same result. Between Jeff and Oscar, they get hundreds of applications from potential clients. So in terms of Andre's case, why did you accept his case? So I took Andre's case going on, well, this summer, it'll be six years ago, when another person that I was working on, Calvin Buari, who I exonerated in May of 2017, um, said to me, you know, while you're looking at my case, uh, you got to look at my friend Andre's case. Uh, like Cal and Andre, I, I grew up in the Bronx. Both Cal and Andre's cases were in my old neighborhood. Um most of the witnesses, and I believe Andre, went to my high school. So I had a very personal connection to the case and to the neighborhood. So that certainly was was a leg up. And the fact that Cal Buari, who I knew was innocent, was telling me that Andre was innocent and that I should devote my, my time to it was a big plus. But more importantly, uh, there was clear route to proving his innocence because of two newly found witnesses. So when I read through the transcript, I found a page out of the hundreds and hundreds of pages where the defense attorney says to the judge, I need you to sign these subpoenas to subpoena these two witnesses that I have. And he names the guys that we're talking about. In the trial transcript, there's a sidebar with the DA. These two people are named as exculpatory witnesses for Andre, presenting an alternative suspect and reasonable doubt. And the judge said, well, of course, that's relevant evidence. I'll be glad to sign the subpoena, but there's no address on here. I need, a, I need an address to serve them. 
And the lawyer said, "Okay, I'll get back to you with an address. And he never did. Oscar noticed that the two witnesses who would have been exculpatory for Andre were never called. The fact that they were named in the trial transcript by his defense lawyer as being eyewitnesses and then not being pursued beyond that, you know, made me realize that obviously it was an, an incompetent defense. And incompetent is the kindest word that Oscar could use to talk about Thomas Lee. The more he looked into the case, the more mistakes Oscar found that Lee had made. If you remember, Lee hadn't started out as Andre's lawyer. The first attorney was a man named Ira Brown. Ira Brown seemed to recognize the importance of Andre's injury, the first shooting a year ago, and in fact talked about it in court, according to transcripts. Said, Judge, my guy's innocent. Uh, he was shot 11 months ago. He's still engaging in physical therapy today. That's in the record. He said he couldn't, he can't run. Um, and the judge said, that's a very compelling defense, Mr. Brown. Uh, he said, judge, the family's hired me, but they don't have any money for an expert. Can you allow court funds to be used by me to get the medical records and hire an expert? And the judge said, of course, I'm going to give you, let's start with $500 to get the records and come back if you need anything else. But that never happened. They switched lawyers and the ball was dropped. And Andre's family um, made a decision that I'm, I'm sure they regret. And that is that they switched lawyers and they hired a guy named Thomas Lee, who had just won a very big mafia related uh, murder case. Lee represented members of the Bonanno crime family, one of the five mafia families of New York City organized crime. Families. The Gambino family. The Genovese family. Colombo. Lucchese. Bonanno. We gonna... The American mafia and the five families were at their peak in the 1960s. But then in the 1970s, RICO, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, became a federal law and allowed for crime bosses to be prosecuted. Thanks to the RICO Act, which makes it easier to prosecute prosecute an entire organization based on the criminal actions of a few members. That's when the decline of the five families started. John Gotti, boss of the Gambino family, was sentenced to life in prison in 1992. He was indicted by a grand jury and arrested by FBI agents on federal racketeering charges, stemming from his role as the acting head of the Gambino crime family. And by 2003, the Bonanno crime boss, Joseph Massino, was indicted. Joseph Big Joey Massino was the legendary godfather of the Bonanno crime family. To the FBI, he was known as the Last Dawn. And along with him, Thomas Lee, Andre's lawyer. Lee was charged with racketeering, conspiracy to commit murder, and obstruction of justice. And one of Mr. Lee's claims to fame is that he is the first lawyer ever admitted into the FBI witness protection program because he cooperated against the Bonanno crime family and put away various members of the Bonanno crime family. So what happened back then, there were a lot of big mob trials going on. And in the Bronx, there were a couple of big mob lawyers and everyone believed that mob lawyers were like the go-to guys. And Lee was good at his job. For example, his cross-examinations are, are, are pretty good. Um, he does a very good cross-examination of Sean Nicholson. But when Lee took over, he did things different than the first lawyer, which included nixing the best defense Andre had. Mr. Lee 
decided not to pursue the medical defense for reasons that we will never know. That he physically could not have been the shooter because the shooter was seen chasing down Sean Nicholson. Andre could not run because of the shooting incident a year earlier, which he was still recovering from. So we tracked down the surgeon and I said to him, you know, could somebody with these injuries uh, have engaged in a foot chase? And he said, I'm 70 years old. I would have beat him by a lap. This was a horrific leg injury. It was six surgeries. Uh, we took out a, we, the, the muscle they took out of Andre's leg is the one that you use to plant your foot whenever you run. It's called the runner's muscle. He said, you know, someone who has surgery on the soleus muscle, they're not running for a good two years. He said, it's just not possible. You know, we did nerve implants. We did skin grafts. And I said, were you ever contacted back then by anybody? He said, no, no. Lee didn't get the medical records or expert defense witness Andre's original trial lawyer was granted to present. Instead, basically told Andre, there's a one witness ID case. If she don't show up, you know, there's no case. Lo and behold, someone starts intimidating Ms. Telfer to the point where the day before she testifies, uh, an envelope with a bullet in it is left on her windshield and said, this is for people who testify, you fat bitch. And she doesn't testify. So that's not how you plan a defense. If she doesn't show up, that's great, but you got to plan a defense. But guys like that, you know, that that was the style, you know, to, for, to forego the strongest defenses that you have, just because you think you could be a, you could be a cowboy and scare off the sole witness, you know, that's crazy. That's just, you know, th there's no excuse for it. You think the judge thought it was Andre and that kind of played a role in perhaps his sentence? It played a role in the sentence, but more importantly, it played a role in allowing the prosecution to read Stephanie Telfer's grand jury testimony. Stephanie didn't testify because of the threats. So the prosecution argued that it would send a terrible message if intimidating a witness led to someone getting away with murder. Prosecutors asked the judge to grant an incredibly rare ruling, allowing Stephanie's grand jury testimony to be read into the court record instead. And it's rare because people accused of crimes are, by law, supposed to be able to cross-examine their accusers. It's part of the whole innocence until proven guilty thing. And in this case, though, Stephanie was too scared to testify, and the judge agreed with prosecutors. We can't let defendants just intimidate people and get away with it. It's understandable, but it also meant that the jury heard testimony that was unchallenged. It's a tremendous loss to Andre to have that testimony read. You know, when you read it cold, there's no doubt that she saw Andre. No one said, well... I didn't tell I was I was sitting in a car at night and I originally said it was at a, at a, at a red light. There's a stop sign there, not a red light. And the the shooting actually occurred around the corner. So she couldn't have seen the shooting, even if she wanted to. She suffered an attack of angina and had to be hospitalized that night to show the incredible stress that she was under. And she obviously when she views a lineup. She's not picking out the shooter. She's picking out Andre Brown, who she knew from the neighborhood. 
Right. And who there were posters for. And there were posters for. So the, the jury who tried the case didn't hear any of that. And I want to make very clear. I do believe Stephanie thought she saw Andre. But there's an alternate suspect who we'll get to in a minute. And he and Andre look almost identical. There's a side-by-side photo on our website. Our expert witness is going to testify how it's so dangerous to have what's early social contagion. You're not supposed to even tell someone when you show them the pictures that you think you have the suspect in the pictures. That increases the likelihood that they're going to point to somebody. Oscar says today Andre's path forward is predominantly relying on the two new witnesses I mentioned earlier. The two who were supposed to be subpoenaed but weren't because Thomas Lee didn't have their addresses right away. Wow. And so so they've been spoken to. You have affidavits by them. And and they are they willing to testify if anything comes up? Oh, absolutely. Not only not only that, we presented them to the Bronx District Attorney's Conviction Integrity Unit. They questioned them under oath. One of the witnesses was a drug dealer who worked for the man he claims was the actual shooter, a guy whose nickname was Bonkers. Witness A said that Bonkers had a turf war with one of the survivors, O'Neill Virgo. These guys sold marijuana and the drug war was between American blacks and Jamaicans who were selling marijuana and fighting over street corners. So witness A says that a few days before the incident that Andre was arrested for, O'Neill Virgo and Bonkers got in a shootout. Bonkers left the first shooting, telling witness A, I'm going to get them. Days later on the 15th, the shooting Andre was arrested for, a second witness, witness B, saw a man he knew to be Bonkers chasing down another man, Sean Nicholson. Witness B saw Bonkers shoot Nicholson in the back and flee the scene. So witness A said, I was with the real shooter on January 13th when he shot at these guys. And witness B said, I was with the real shooter on January 15th when he finally actually hit those guys. This clearly establishes motive for the shooting on the 15th. And to be fair, Thomas Lee did try to get evidence about this first shooting entered into Andre's trial. But prosecutors successfully argued at the time these were two separate and unrelated incidents. They said they were sure of it because... In the transcript, the DA says, Judge, I want to keep out this evidence because she says, I initially was going to introduce that to show a common pattern, what we call an MO. She was going to try and show this was an MO for Andre, but Virgo said he didn't think that Andre was the shooter from the first incident which killed their M.O. argument. But Mr. Virgo says he do, he's not sure that it was the defendant who shot him. So to make this clear, there were two shootings within a few days. The prosecutor at first thought Andre was the gunman in both, but Virgo has said that Andre wasn't the shooter in the first incident. Meanwhile, two separate witnesses to the two separate shootings both said this guy Bonkers was the shooter in both of them. And sure, someone could say, well, the two witnesses are just making it up. But there's something else that had never been seen by Andre or the jury. That is literally the smoking gun. 
For years, Andre had requested the files in his case. Eventually, he got them, but noticed some pages were missing. When Oscar and Jeff came on, they were finally able to get the full file. Lo and behold, we found a police ballistics report not previously exchanged that showed they had done a ballistics search. One set of bullets found at the scene of the first shooting matched the bullets found at the second incident on the 15th, which Andre was arrested for, meaning the same gun was used to shoot Virgo on the first incident as the second. This was known to prosecutors at the time, and yet they still argued during Andre's trial that the two shootings weren't linked. So reasonably, there are only two conclusions. Either Andre somehow used the same gun the first shooter used, or the same person shot at Virgo. And since he said it wasn't Andre in the first, Oscar says it's more likely that Bonkers was the shooter both times. A clear connection between the two shootings is established and the complainant told the police that it was not Andre. So it's just an amazing set of facts that were kept out of the jury's knowledge. Oscar says this new information about a drug war could have completely changed the outcome. The jury would have been much more likely to believe an alternate suspect if they knew that O'Neill Virgo was involved in a shooting uh, two days earlier and was not some local kid getting a snack at a bodega after playing video games, but was in fact going to his regular place of business selling weed on that corner. So it's a whole new theory. There's a motive now. There was never a motive. Right. That's what I was just going to just going to ask you. And I felt stupid because I was like, maybe I just missed this. I did not get any kind of motive other than, oh, I had an argument with him. So he comes back. Not even an argument. They claim that for some reason. Andre stared at them. This is O'Neill Virgo. Andre stared at them and made a gun pointing finger at them. Right. Okay. That's what I saw. And then I was like, am I missing something? This makes no sense. Yes, you're missing a motive. They never came across like, well, why would he do that? And the other thing, too, is, which is very clear from Andre's record, Andre sold crack. Okay. He could give a rat's ass who was selling weed. That's not his thing. He was around the corner at a project where he used to sell crack. Okay. And sure, if you were trying to sell crack in that same courtyard, you might. You know, you might have run into him, but he could care if you're selling weed around the corner and a block away. There'd be no there'd be no beef between these people. So, you know, uh, it'd be like a donut shop being upset that, you know, a car dealer was next door. What difference does it make? And so I was wondering how Andre even got named in the first place. We later find out that Sean Nicholson's sister told the pol- told uh, Sean Nicholson that the police think it's Andre Brown before the police questioned him. The first follow-up report states that Nicholson cannot ID the suspect. But then it changes. After he speaks to his sister, he pinpoints Andre. Remember the tip that came in? Nicholson's sister knew about it and knew 
Andre was named. So why pinpoint Andre? I think these guys wanted to take care of bonkers themselves, not the court system. I think, fine, we put up Andre, we get we get a sucker, bonkers thinks he's cleaned, and then the next thing we know, we're going to come back and get bonkers. And why is that? Ten months after this shooting and before Andre's trial, bonkers is shot and killed. Right now, Andre, Oscar, and Jeff are waiting to present their new evidence to a judge. They were granted an evidentiary hearing in March, but then COVID hit. They are now on for January 27th, but it will likely be postponed. So they're waiting on a judge to grant a virtual motion, meaning they can have the hearing on Zoom. And if that goes through, Andre will finally get to present his new evidence to a judge. So it's been a lot of a lot of pressure on Andre and, and his family to try to, you know, keep this all together. Um, and we're just hopeful that he'll soon get his day in court. We feel very confident that if we get our hearing, the conviction is going to be vacated. So today, when you think about getting out, you know, you have a, a wonderful, flourishing family. You have a nine-year-old. You know, you have a full life to look forward to. What do you what do you want to do? I want to be able to take Tamika on a beautiful vacation. I want us to go on, you know, a honeymoon. (laughs) I want to be able to enjoy my son's laughter. I want to be able to see him playing soccer. He's an awesome soccer player. Um, Watch him play basketball. Sit down and be amused in front of a real television set at home, smelling good cooked food, surrounded by family. If you want to help Andre, you can head over to deskovicfoundation.org or write Andre and show your support. As usual, you can find links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at ObsessedNetwork.com. Obsessed Network.